the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're getting down with the crown in season four of Netflix's Buckingham Palace drama as Gillian Anderson brings her best Maggie Thatcher to the fore. We're also joining the cutthroat world of financial services and BBC Two's industry and asking whether a small collection of films truly constitutes a TV series in Steve McQueen's Small Axe. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that has been up for three days straight watching what can only be described as the most deranged episode of Veep yet filmed. But sleep deprived and sanity starved as we undoubtedly are, as we record this on Friday morning, the pilot team is reporting for duty as always. First up, a woman who comes to you in glorious Dolby Atmos this morning, having broken her way into the office studio to take advantage of its superior acoustics. So, to the person on Twitter who called her out for sounding like she was in a goldfish bowl and who helpfully <laughs> suggested she build a blanket fort and record from there, we hope this satisfies you. It's Terry White. Hello. Yes, I hope the shouty man who shouted in all caps about my <laughs> typing is is more satisfied with the service he's receiving from us this week. If not, I'm sure he can send you a tweet, James, to complain about my conduct and or sound. On the plus side, Terry, you will be able to watch the Steven Spielberg Queeby show from your blanket fort. Ooh. So, you know, Ooh. you'll have that advantage. Yeah, there. you know, I still, I'm pretty sure I am still paying for Queeby. So, uh... <laughs> You're the only one. <laughs> Oh, also with us, as you will expect, and indeed demand, is the Tsar of Telly, the Sultan of the Small Screen, the Grand Wizard of the Gogglebox, and a man who I strongly suspect is going to be banging on about pastry within the next five minutes. It's Mr. <laughs> Boyd Hilton. Wow. Actually, yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> pastry and key race alerts. Oh, Two things, God. Yeah. Go, go on, let's get, let's get through it. Oh well, I mean, yeah. I watch I, the, the only thing I've watched apart from the American election on CNN um, li- constantly for the last seventy-two hours is 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 Bake Off actually. Yeah, and um, let me just say, Matt Lucas is doing an absolutely brilliant job co-hosting that program, and um, it's a really good series. And there was an unbelievably stressful episode this week where they made them make ice cream cakes in an eighties theme, like a kind of baked Alaska style ice cream cakes, but much more elaborate and difficult in the, on the hottest weekend of the year. And it was a nightmare and all the ice cream melted and everyone had nervous breakdowns in the tent and it was very dramatic, but it just about stopped. I I, I was at the time and that was kind of broadcast on Tuesday night, day of the election. So it, it was, I was in a state of high stress and anxiety anyway, and that did not help. Um, but it wow. has been, but it is a, a really excellent series of Bake Off back on form. And then the other thing, the, literally the only other thing I have been watching this week is the election. And um, shout out to John King, obviously the hero of CNN's coverage, the man with the <laughs> magic wall who has had, I believe he's had six and a half hours sleep the entire week and yet still knows inside out the detail of every single one of the 3,125 counties that there are in America and how they vote. Um, he is a fucking legend. And also shout out to Anderson Cooper, who last night called the president a fat turtle rolling on his back, flailing. <laughs> which yes, was, I saw that. That was the TV highlight of the week. That was like Aaron Sorkin himself <laughs> could not have scripted that moment after Trump made that fascist address, um, accusing everyone of cheating that where he wasn't winning. Anderson 
Anderson Cooper is a, such a star um, on CNN. If if no one's ever seen him, he is. And brilliant. they cut away, didn't they? They cut away. They were like the president's talking bollocks, and they just yeah. cut away. Well, from CNN him. didn't really. I think a couple. It was of, N- I think MSNBC. MSNBC did. cut away. Mm. Yeah, CNN broadcast the whole thing. Um, and and but their own CNN so brilliant. Their own presenter was criticizing that decision. You know, one in, in, in live mm. on the on the. Like, on why the, are we running this? It's yeah, just nonsense. why are we running? So that was incredible. And the one thing, other thing, I have to say is I finished the Queen's Gambit, which I mentioned last week. The brilliant chess-based miniseries mm. of Daniela Joy, and as everyone pointed out to me on Twitter, <laughs> I made the mistake of saying it was a true story. It's it so feels like a true story the way it's told, but it isn't. It's adapted by a novel by Walter Tevis, and I'm oh. aware of that now. I apologise, but it is a really brilliant um, limited series that we couldn't review on the show. Boyd peddling fake news on the Pilot TV podcast. <laughs> yeah. Boyd, would I like it? I think so. Yeah, I think you would. I, I really do. I mean, yeah, chess. it's it's quite a feminist piece. Oh, chess. Feminist chess. Feminist, feminist chess. chess. Oh, come now, Terry. Like you weren't a member of the chess club at school. <laughs> chess club. <laughs> what and, and by the way, Terry, there is suffering, and you know she's an orphan. Remember? Oh, so yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah, there's suffering, and yeah, oh, the God, chess- there's yeah. suffering. There's misery and debasement. You'll yeah. love it's it. The, um, it's the chess thing. It gets my um, class. It gets the chip on my shoulder. Um, frying. Or something that's not a saying but yeah the chess i know thing, what you mean i have a working class reaction uh, to that sure but it's kind of about that as well Ooh. yeah so i think i think you'd be fine with it yeah yeah it addresses all of that really wow uh terry what have you been watching this week so i also watched bake off and i agree with boyd it was incredibly stressful i think it was actually one of the hottest fa- top five hottest days of all time um it was brilliant what? and it also really highlighted their terrible decision in making them wear the same outfit across my days um because i was like you were in that yesterday <laughs> and you sweat your bollocks off literally um, so, um bake off is very exciting this week i've also been watching the american election made the mistake as did everybody else mm. of staying up to watch him uh, rant at the TV last night, which then meant I had the worst night's sleep last night than I somehow had the nights before that. Um, also, big up the CNN, who've just done an absolute amazing job. I did begin with BBC on election night itself, and Andrew Neil almost sent me um, into a fit. So CNN was, was the much better thing. And actually, I was like, why would I watch a British broadcaster's take on American politics. Just watch the fucking American politics. Um, But at the same time, so actually what I did at the start of election night when I couldn't bear it and there wasn't really much to see anyway and they kept saying it's not going to be tonight or tomorrow and I still wasn't listening was um, the West Wing has had a proper battering so my um my son and my partner went away for the week and i used it like any good person would to have two pizzas five pints and watch something like 16 episodes of the west wing so so i watched um i obviously got to the end of season one so obviously the finale of season one and then the opening two episodes of season two um whoa i almost had to i was almost messaging you and i was like no don't save it for the part so in the shadow of two gunmen um that two-parter that season two kicks off with Mm. and then do you know what what's interesting is he had a few episodes where it was kind of a little bit slower there wasn't necessarily a huge amount happening um and then i watched the other night noel um which mm. just almost in a way comes out of the blue because obviously you had the attack and then the way they brought that back and the way they pieced that together through his conversations with the therapist the way the flashbacks he remembered and and the way they used those flashbacks not to deintervoid the most hated thing i just thought was absolutely fucking genius um mm. so 
How good is Adam oh Arkin? Oh my god! I mean, that entire the the entire structure of that episode, the pacing and rhythm of that episode. What a fucking work of art! And so, where I am now is I am at um, season no season two episode thirteen, Bartlett's third State of the Union. Ah um, yes, yes, and that's yes, where yes. I am, and I've pretty much just binged it. And so I had this weird thing on election night where I was watching The West Wing. And then turning on to the actual normal telly, and the normal telly um, was far more insane and dramatic and uh, fictional in my head than what was going on in the West Wing. But the West Wing was providing me, I just kept thinking, this, if all goes the way I'd like it to, these will be scenes that could be playing out in the West Wing and in the Oval (laughs) Office in the months and days to come. And it was very, very, very comforting for me. And... Uh, judging from some of the conversations I had on Twitter, I wasn't the only one spending election day <laughs> and night watching The West Wing. There was a lot of West Wing action. Yeah, therapy, self care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you have a new appreciation for HMS Pinafore? The what? HMS Pinafore, Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh- <laughs> after the uh, the uh, and it's surely to their credit, which I believe is episode five of season two. I mean, it's just, I, I, I know I say this every week, but just the different narrative structures they use. You know, most TV shows, they have the way that they execute their episodes and they sometimes mix that up for finales, for um, anniversary episodes. You know, they're those special moments. If you think about the number of times Friends did that in however many years, three or four times. Mm. And with, with The West Wing, it's like every other episode is something completely inventive and innovative and it's just their their commitment to constantly making it feel excellent and non-predictable unpredictable even would be the actual word (laughs) and just like a piece each one is like a piece of art i'm like each one could be a movie it's it's just amazing i can't believe there are hundreds and hundreds of these episodes it's like the fucking gift to the world aaron sorkin honestly should be carried around on our shoulders for the rest of time what a gift to man is the West Wing. I mean, I, I do my best to do that. So. Yeah, you do, uh, I was going to say, James does that spiritually, if not literally. But I get it, though. Yeah, I yeah. totally, you know, yeah, I used to roll yeah. my eyes, still do sometimes, but... I mean, you still do, yeah. I, honestly, what what a piece of work, what a body of work. If that was all he ever did for the rest of his life, what a life that is. What a contribution mm-hmm. to not telly or anything, just to art and culture and people i mean it's astonishing i never thought anyone would go more over the top about aaron sorkin than james but this is this is extraordinary i'm, I'm sitting agree, here like I with mean. my best palpatine that everything had preceded as I have yeah. So, yeah james is kind of going off isn't he let's be frank james is going yeah. off me actually yeah. liking the west wing I, I think so. Yeah, I think that feels that's his role. Yeah, yeah you've superseded his yeah. role. You're like you've, you're West Wing explaining to me. Like this is a yeah. dark time for me. Yeah. <laughs> but is the James is is season two the best season? I think it probably is, isn't it? I was, uh, maybe. Your mileage, I think it's kind of like pff, mileage may vary slightly. Like two is a great season, but there's so I I it's, that's like Sophie's Choice Boy. It's like how do you pick yeah. from your children? <laughs> okay. um, like I definitely, I mean, five is definitely the worst. Like that's there's no yeah. even discussion now. Like five is, but I still don't think it's bad. It just takes a tip. And then six and seven is kind of like a transformational period for the show, but it's really, really good in its own way. Is that when, um, so is five when Sorkin left? 
Yeah, so he leaves at the end of season four. He leaves them on a cliffhanger, which is hilarious. And then season five, John Wells took over and he's writing. And the thing with John season five is he tries to do what it's already been doing without Sorkin and it just doesn't work. Like, it's not bad. And like, I can't emphasize enough. It's still better than most things on TV, in my opinion. But it's a, it's... Yeah, it's nowhere near as good. And then six and seven, they switch it up because it becomes about the next presidential race. It becomes about running for office and, you know, Bartlett's successor. Like, it moves away from the literal West Wing and it's about the campaign trail and the campaign. And that is incredibly compelling. And it, it, what's really smart about it is it's a different kind of show and it feels different, has a different texture to it. And they gradually wean you off the White House stuff by doing like one episode each, one episode each. And gradually you get to the point where you, before you know it, you don't want to be in the White House. You only want to be on the campaign trail. And that's when you realise you've been completely sold on this new format. Yeah, which it's- I can't imagine because as soon as you then said, oh, it's not really in the West Wing at all, I was like, because I love that, from, I love that mm. grammar of the West Wing and the thought of going outside of that just made me panic then when you said it. It, it, and I understand why. And I think part of the reason is that the stuff that goes on in the West Wing becomes, the stuff that's happening at the White House maybe becomes a touch less compelling, whereas the campaign stuff is really, really interesting. But you still do get both. It just it flips between the two and the weight of it starts to move more towards the campaign as you go on. And certainly season seven is basically about that. And you've got, in season seven, you've got the you've got Alan Alda and... Yeah, um, Alan Alda and Jimmy Smits are yeah, both I mean, you don't, glorious. Yeah, they are brilliant. The debate episode is fucking brilliant. Yeah, it? the live Absolutely one. incredible. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of good shit to come. There is a lot of good stuff to come. Uh, what, I've, what have I been watching this week? Uh, well, I'm still watching Counterpart, though I have not finished it yet, although I'm about halfway through season two. I have watched the new episode of The Mandalorian, got up early to watch that this morning, which was loads and loads of fun. I will not spoil it here, but all I'm going to say is no, in fact, I'm not going to say anything about it because that would be a spoiler. But um, I will say that if you do want to hear me banging on about spoilers for The Mandalorian, then The Empire Spoiler Special Podcast drops every Monday with us uh, going into forensic detail about the episodes of The Mandalorian. So you can sign up for that at glow.fm slash empirefilm. Last week's was loads of fun. Uh, we're recording this week's today and it will be live on Monday around the same time as this very podcast here. So that is good. But yes, other than that, I've just been watching the election and fucking hell. Um, (laughs) So shall we move on to this week's listener question, which comes from Quiet Mike, who it turns out does not believe in nominative determinism. Uh, Quiet Mike had a lot to say, it seems, uh, when he said, Greetings, Pilot TV pod. Please allow me to begin by stating the following directly to James. One, when it comes to judging comedy, you are wrong 99% of the time. Two, when it comes to judging the number of stars assigned to the movie Molly's Game, you are also wrong. Three, when it comes to judging the merits of the West Wing, and it pains me to say this, you are irrefutably 100% correct. Thank you, Mike. Uh, But his question, because he does get to the point eventually, my question to the team this week is what TV shows have managed to reverse your initial pessimistic expectations? So I'm just going to say never happened. So I decide that I'm not going (laughs) to like something. And then I don't like it. This Very is refusing to climb down from a wrong opinion shocker. So the, um, the, the, and I've mentioned this before, the big one has always been The Wire. So I gave The Wire the go, the go. I gave The, the go. Wire I gave it the go. go. And um, always got like three or four episodes in and just felt bored to tears. And then, every, you know, when I was in my dating years, 
I would meet a man and that man would invariably say, you don't like The Wire, I'm going to make you like The Wire. And at one point I ended up owning three box sets, all bought for me by different men. <laughs> all insisted that they were going to be the one to turn me. Um, I think one of them I did lie. I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast and tell him uh, that I liked it just to make him stop. But still, <laughs> like, still had the same experience, watched it. I've seen the first, I think, four. Couldn't get into it. Um, and I do think it's a psychological thing with me. I, th- I think I find it very hard once I've I've assigned something a certain, given it a value in my head. I find it hard to unpick that and and walk it back. I sense a new regular coming. Terry watches The Wire a week by week. Watch oh, along, yeah. Wow. Where we try and wire explain to you. Um, um, I will just finish by saying that the closest I suppose I've come is The West Wing because I was. Just, I didn't think I'd hate it. I just thought it's not going to be one for me. I'm never going to fall in love with a show like this. You know, definitely not as soon as you started banging on about it, James. And it's been a revelation. It's easily in my top three TV shows of all time, if not the best TV show of all time. And (laughs) I could not have imagined at the start of this year, which has been a significant year for so many other reasons, um, ending it being a psychotic West Wing fan. So I suppose that that's as close as I'll ever get. This may be the proudest of someone I've ever been. <laughs> it's like, this is my greatest achievement. This is my legacy. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, next year, The Wire. Terry watches The mm. Wire. We'll be, try- <laughs> we'll it, be starting uh, on the podcast. <laughs> let's not push our luck, shall we? <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, all right, fine. So Terry, Terry refuses to climb down on anything, but Boyd, it falls then to uh, you. Yeah, I have a. I do. I know what I. I, I do completely identify with what Terry's saying, and I have a little bit of that. I had, a, but I. I will in the end give things a go, and I think like, I had that with Breaking Bad. I would say would be my closest equivalent. I definitely resisted Breaking Bad for quite a long time. I think I just felt Breaking Bad is one of those shows that if you read the the, the kind of premise, you know, if you read about it and you just see clips of it and you don't really watch it, it feels like what is going to be so special about this story? You know, it's like another anti-hero doing bad stuff, but mm. blokes doing bad stuff, getting into criminal behaviour um, and their wives having to cope with it, their wives and family having to cope with it. It feels like a very, you know, what's so special about that. But actually, I did give in to Breaking Bad and I do, it is absolutely one of my top, five shows of all time or whatever so and of course then Better Call Saul is is equally incredible so I'm glad I did give in to that resistance I kind of resisted the wire myself as well for quite a long time and I still think season two is boring oh my god you're so wrong I know um but the one, the fu- um, the boys recently. I I I did I did yes, get, have a did. problem you with the boys. You did a reverse ferret on yeah, that. Yeah, I, re- I reverse ferreted on that, and I I now I finished that series season two, you know, a few weeks ago, and I thought they did a brilliant job, really. So the thing that the thing that I didn't like about the boys was its smugness and its <laughs> kind of, and it's still it is that it is <laughs> that, but I think there is more heart there in season two than I than I recognised initially, and um, it's brilliantly made and all of that. So I gave in to the boys, and even Seinfeld, which is pretty much my favourite show of all time. I didn't like to start with and it felt very cheesy and obvious the first couple of seasons and they're not great to be honest it, the first couple of seasons of Seinfeld and I remember when I first saw it I was like why the fuck is everyone banging on about this show because there was quite a delay I think from it going out in the States and arriving here on BBC Two weirdly it was shown on BBC Two here and um, and then it got to season three and I was like oh actually this is brilliant um, so yeah there's been a few I love the fact that Seinfeld 
your favourite TV show of all time, which didn't feature in your top five TV shows it? when you oh. did them on this podcast. Oh. Right, okay. Did I choose Kirby Enthusiasm instead? I yes. think. Okay, there you go. You did. Fine. You did, yeah. I think. Okay. Um, wow. Okay, that's good. But I see, I'm, I'm, I, I don't, I've learned that I just can't trust my own judgment because literally my two favourite TV shows, I watched the pilots and was like, meh. And that doesn't matter. All I can put it down to is I was young. I was very, very young. And it was like 20 years ago. <laughs> but uh, when I saw the pilot of The West Wing, I didn't watch subsequent episodes, which is my greatest TV shame. And I don't know why. I can only assume that there weren't enough spaceships in it for me when I was 20 years old. But it was, uh, I, it, I just, I don't know what was wrong with me when I was younger. I really don't. Genuinely looking back on it, I don't understand. But what's more interesting about The West Wing is I don't understand what made me suddenly change my mind. So I watched the pilot and for some reason didn't watch any more and then i decided i wanted to watch it and that's when i got boyd to lend me the, the 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 tapes for it and then i watched it all and became and i've been obsessed with it ever since so i don't know what's twisted me around there with Battlestar galactica i watched the first part of the miniseries and again it's objectively amazing and yet it didn't seize me and it wasn't until like people in the office who'd watched the episode 33 when the proper series had started were like, no, no, you've got to give this another chance. This is one of the best episodes of TV we've ever seen. And I went back and I rewatched the miniseries and I thought, this is brilliant. I, what genuinely, what is wrong with me? So what, what I, you should take away from this is you cannot trust my judgment on really anything. That's, uh, that's the moral of this particular story. But uh, I had the same thing as you, Boyd, with Breaking Bad. It bored my socks off for the first you know season or so. And then I was like, oh, this is really good once it got going. Mm. Um, but this is a different question to the one that I think we've been asked separately, which is you know shows that started badly and became good, of which there are a great many. But this is, I think, a slightly different thing. This is, you know when we've been wrong <laughs> it's when we yeah, have missed, but I don't think, missed the I don't point think breaking bad started badly i start slowly think, not badly slowly sure yeah mm. and and, that, and, it, and that's not even why yeah i think i was I, I think the, the question is about resisting something just because you don't like the idea of it isn't it and i did have that with breaking bad uh so i didn't i did wasn't i didn't like the idea of the western or anything like that again it's just it didn't something just didn't like the spark didn't ignite, like something didn't yeah. quite fall. Yeah. And in all likelihood, I wasn't really watching it. I was probably doing something else while I was watching it. And you know how I am with multitasking. I probably just didn't pay any attention to anything that was happening. But uh, yeah, it's it's it, it always sort of like weirds me out. And But since then, I've been quite open then to revisiting things, time permitting, because I am now aware that you can get these things horribly wrong. And then, you know, you might watch it again and go, oh my God, this is great. Okay, well, I hope we have answered that particular question. Mike, if not addressed your other grievances, um, if you would like your question answered on the podcast, do DM it to at PilotTVPod on Twitter or feel free to hurl it to me on social media as well if you so choose. Now, let's move on to this week's news. And while we don't have the results of the US presidential election just yet, other things have been happening, haven't they? I'm going to start with some Channel 5 news. Okay. Which is quite rare, isn't it? But... It's, I think it's very exciting. Jodie Turner-Smith of Queen and Slim fame, the brilliant um, film that came out um, at the beginning of this year in this country, has been cast as Anne Boleyn in a new uh, drama serial that's going to be on Channel 5. And I think that's brilliant news. Um, that It's it's also going to start Amanda Burton and Papa Asiedu from I May Destroy You fame. 
and it looks really interesting and uh, the working title is just Anne Boleyn. It's, it's been described as a psychological thriller take on her and her life. And it's directed by the director of Deadwater Fell, Lindsay Miller, too, kind of, who did a brilliant job in terms of that psychological thriller. So I think it's a really interesting project for the casting, um, for the fact that it's taking the angle on it. And and I don't know if everyone realises, but Channel 5 is fascinatingly obsessed with Anne Boleyn <laughs> as a figure. And they have a show about her pretty much every fucking week. And it's weird and extraordinary how obsessed they are with it. With her. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they've got a three-part documentary oh on the next week. Yeah, and if you look at their schedules, almost every week there's a fucking Anne Boleyn programme. It's like the, their head of programmes, their director, Ben Frout, talks about how obsessed he is with her. So he he actually said at the Edinburgh TV Festival, if you have any idea about Anne Boleyn, you can get it commissioned <laughs> for Channel 5. So, yeah. I think it's amazing I'm, that I'm they're doing it, that. and I think she is such a phenomenal actor and quite a classical actress that I can totally see her being able to pull that off um, as Anne Boleyn. I think yeah. it's it's fascinating and it's really bold um, of them because you know I think we yeah. you probably saw some of the same responses I did from from idiots who were querying um, praying her getting that role. But I think it's just going to be so interesting. And now I'm going to try and um, binge all their other Amberlynn content. Check it out. Check out the Amberlynn content on Channel 5. You'll be excited to hear that Star Trek Discovery has officially begun production on Season 4. Come on. <laughs> That's Terry's excited face. Uh, yeah. Good news. Good news there. What else is happening in the world of TV? So uh, here's a slightly interesting one. So Hilary Burton, specifically Hilary Burton Morgan, uh, which is Jeffrey Dean Morgan's wife, will be playing Jeffrey Dean Morgan's wife <laughs> in The Walking Dead. So she's taking on the role of Negan's wife, Lucille, uh, which is also the name of his baseball bat. This is a slightly odd one because canonically Lucille is dead. So I assume, I'm assuming there will be some flashback episodes or at least a flashback episode, which fills out some of Negan's life before he became, you know, Negan, which actually makes a lot of sense because he's there's a, been a couple of sort of spin-off there's been Negan Lives and Here's Negan which are like spin-off comics just about Negan um, and one of them does deal with his kind of origin and it's really interesting and it makes the character more you know relatable <laughs> Um, so perhaps that's what they're doing. He's going to get a special episode. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. You will, of course, remember Hilary Burton as uh, as playing one of the leads in One Tree Hill, Terry. Oh yes. <laughs> did we um, did we see the Bridgerton teaser trailer? Yes. Um, so this yeah. is Shonda Rhimes doing period drama, um, which <laughs> is that in and of itself is enough to. Um, Get us going. And it is starring uh, Nicola Coughlin from Derry Girls. Yeah, it looks like, do you know what? It just looks like loads of fucking fun. It's exactly as you'd it expect. Does, yeah. Shondaland period drama, to be specific, to look like. I'm looking forward yeah. to us reviewing mm -hmm. this one, actually. I think it'll be a barrel of laughs. Yeah, beautiful people in lavish costumes, in lavish period settings, having yeah. hijinks with Julie Andrews narrating the whole thing. Lush. Yeah. Well yeah, done, Boyd. Really that showed remarkable restraint for you to say, well, when I was on set, it looked excellent. No, I didn't go on set. I did had you to not? See someone I else. thought you were no, on set. I was supposed to, and I couldn't make it, and I had to get it. Yeah, someone else did instead. Yeah. Well, that explains it. Sad. Uh, what else is happening in the world? Castle Rock has been cancelled after two seasons. So after the Annie Wilk season, which we reviewed on this show, which was very good, uh, Lizzie Kaplan in the role, that will not be returning for a third season. So sorry, King fans. Fair enough, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <Yeah. laughs> did you finish season two, James? Oh, God, no. Yeah. 
I'm not even going to ask Terry. She's in a season. I am two. season no. two. <laughs> <laughs> you are season two of misery. Yeah, I am season two. Apple, you know Apple's uh, Severance, their show Severance, mm. that's had a few. So John Chichura and Christopher Walken have both joined yep. the cast of that show, which looks like an interesting kind of big ticket event for Apple TV. Uh, and they can use a few more of those. Uh, this is one taking place at a company. It's a workplace drama. Uh, it takes place at a company that's looking to uh, take work-life balance to a whole new level, it says. I don't really know what that means, but I'm <laughs> sure we'll find out. Christopher Walken doesn't do much TV though, does he? So it's quite interesting. He's kind of yeah. one of the few big, kind of you know, classic actor figures who does. I don't. I can't even remember the last thing I saw him do on TV. Mm. So I think that's pretty interesting. Do you see the This Country American uh, cast shot they oh, put no. out? No. Yeah, yeah. It's um, so they confirmed. Well, so Fox is going to be on the Fox Network in America, and they've they've confirmed that they've. Ordered the first series for 2021-2022 season. Um, it stars Chelsea Holmes and Sam Straley as the equivalent of the main two main characters, um, played by Daisy Cooper and Charlie Cooper in our version. And it's kind of effectively going to be jointly showrun by Paul oh. Feig. What? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. He's one of the exec, exec producers. Yeah. Um, and Jenny Bix, who worked on Sex and the City, among other um, shows. So it's got, yeah, it's got like a lot of, and weirdly, Sean William Scott's in it from American Pie. I know, as one of, the, and I don't know who he's playing, but I've got a sneaky feeling he might be playing the equivalent of the he, vicar. He had a run of very weird films, basically playing, um, right? Because he's Stifler, isn't he? So he had, yeah, so yeah, he had Stifler, a very exactly, yeah. weird run of, of playing Stifler over and over again in weird films. But he could work, actually, because he's just ridiculous enough. Yeah, he is ridiculous enough, yeah. So, yeah, that, that is happening, the American, uh, this country. So I wanted to mention this um, Oscar Pistorius documentary that there's been mm. a lot of um, backlash to, quite rightly. Mm. So I think it actually airs this Sunday on the BBC. And I think what um, a lot of women, including myself, have objected to is the BBC put out a trailer, um, which unfortunately in the entire trailer didn't once mention the name of the woman he's been convicted of killing. And her name is Reva Steenkamp. Um, so they put out this trailer really kind of focusing on his professional accomplishments and, and what a beloved uh, character he was, but he did shoot and kill her in 2013. He was found not guilty of murder, but guilty of culpable homicide. Um, initially, that was then overturned and he was convicted of murder. Um, so, And what their pitch was is it will look how he went from being an international hero to his to a convicted murderer. Um, but I think that, I don't know if either of you two saw that trailer, it was hugely offensive, yeah. not to mention um, her name once is an extraordinary uh, decision. I think they ended up pulling it um, in the end off mm, their social accounts did, yeah. because of um, how many people were upset by it. I have to say, it's we're obviously, um, we haven't reviewed it. It's not one I intend to watch. Um, I think the, a story that is not going to in any way focus on Reva Steenkamp, her family, you know, what happened to her um, is probably not something that I would want to watch. And I think part of the problem with narratives around um, domestic violence and around um, men who kill women, especially women who are intimately known to them or in relationships with them, is this sense that 
there is this thing you can put your hand on that can you can put your finger right on the thing that made them do it before that they were just a normal man and look where he ended up that narrative of of um of there being a causation which is easily identified is probably bound up in her um just normalizes that kind of violence and that kind of act and i am saying all this without having seen it um so let me make that point but i think everything i've seen so far in how they're positioning this um has led to this deserved backlash and i hope they're more considerate when they look at these issues going forward sorry to get on my little box made of soap but I, I, want to, I wanted to say oh, something fair enough, about that. Yeah. I mean, they did apologise, didn't they? Yeah. The BBC did apologise for the, as well as pulling it. Yeah, yeah, as well as pulling the trailer. But I agree. I mean, I, the idea of watching a three-part documentary about Oscar about Vittori, his achievements, from you know, centering yeah. him, yeah, centered on, center, is just not. No, I'm sorry. No. Well, does that round <laughs> off news? Sorry, do, do we and have any, yeah. any more injustices <laughs> yeah. we would like yeah. to address? <laughs> I mean, don't get me started, but that'll do for now. <laughs> okay, good. Well, in which case, let's move on to the reviews. And we begin this week with Industry. This is an HBO drama from Mickey Down and Conrad Kay and is based on their experiences working in the dog-eat-dog world of financial services. Uh, the show follows a group of young graduates as they join Pierpoint, a prestigious investment bank in London. Now, the first episode here is directed by Lena Dunham and the show is notable for, among other things, failing the Bellend test more spectacularly than almost any other show on television. Now, Boyd did... The rampant bellendery here put you off. Of course not. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, I embrace the 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 kind of you embrace ensemble. the bellend, boy. You embrace, I embrace the, the bellend. I embrace the ensemble of bellends. You know, Succession is the obvious example mm. of a show entirely populated by bellends. As is this, I have to say, is the closest. It did. It, it reminds me of Succession in, in a lot of ways, in the fact, in the way that it immerses you right from the off in 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 a world. Um, uh, where these horrendous, selfish, self-absorbed, desperate people are trying to attain some level of power within, in this case, this high-stress workplace of kind of of, of banking. This is set in, in in theory like the big, the most successful, biggest, most powerful bank in the world. Um, that's the setup, and the young people who are arriving um, for the first time in this setting are all competing effectively for a small number of places of permanent positions in this company, which is which will within you know, four or five years, m turn them all into people earning hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, if not millions of pounds. So it's all about, you know, these people competing for these to become incredibly rich, basically, and the desperation that instills in them. So you have one character, for example, Hari, played by Naban Rizwan, who is so desperate that he basically sleeps there in the mm. office secretly, um, you know, survives on energy drinks, um, could barely eat, barely functions, and yet somehow, you know, can he keep it together? And he's the kind of most extreme environment. There's a lot that part of a lot of the focus is on a character called Harper, an American played by Mahala Herald who is the outsider she's arriving from new york and she's kind of there's dodgy issues about her cv or her resume as they call it in america and um she because she's a she's a useful outsider position to kind of an entry into this crazy world and then so you've got these young people the kind of 
that layer, if you like, the newbies arriving. And then brilliantly, I think, they are surrounded by slightly more experienced people in the various floors of this of this bank situation who are who treat the newbies with contempt, basically, and kind of bully them effectively with varying it's very varying levels of psychopathy. And and there are others who try and help them. So there's kind of levels of casting in this. Um the more experienced actors play the more experienced characters, and you recognize some of those people. Um I think the this so the, the two guys who wrote this Mickey Down and Conrad K this is their first ever TV project they they made one um, very very uh, low, uh, low budget indie film in 2015 and I and they constantly if you look at I looked at interviews with them from that time and they're constantly acknowledging the influence of girls interestingly and they talk about Lena Dunham and they, then she 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 must have seen that and has ended up directing this first episode and and having quite an influence on the kind of style so I think she's done a fantastic job I have to say. Um, of making it seem incredibly authentic. It just feels, it's got that hectic quality to it. And I think, I I, I must also say, I think there's an influence on the sex scenes because the sex scenes, there's a lot of, you know, kind of illicit activity. There's a lot of people shagging each other who really shouldn't be behind each other's backs and kind of in surprising situations. I've watched, by the way, four episodes, so I'm halfway through the whole series. And there's a definite girl's style, no holds barred. We are going to show what sex is really like between these people. And I thought that's really interesting, really interesting. And I definitely feel there's a, there's a, her influence there. Um, Freya Mavers in it, who's in Skins, who's brilliant. Will Tudor's in it, who's fantastic. Ken Lung is in it as this kind of um, boss figure who you can't tell whether he's going to be horrible or he's quite nice. I really liked it. I think it's really, I think it's got a really promising style. It has a this life quality to it to me. Like, you know, it's kind of tapping into the zeitgeist, if you use that horrible phrase. It feels very current. It feels it's addressing sexuality and gender and class in a, in a, in a, in a really, in, and yeah, it's funny. Uh, and it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's kind of having a high old time of it as well. And I really enjoyed it. Sorry. James, I thought about you all the way through because <laughs> the Bell End, um, the Bell End test. I oh, mean, there God. was a line where one of them says to the other one, um, she'd been overheard talking about her and she was in the in the toilet stall. And she went, oh, I was the less cunty one. And that's kind of um, <laughs> yeah. the way that everybody's yeah. judged in the show is who is the least cunty. So I did, this is this is a weird one because I liked I liked it, but there were also bits that didn't work for me. I'm I'm a bit mixed on it, and it has been called you know the millennial madmen. I think Boyd's right about there being this life qualities. I think uh, Lena Dunham said it was Wolf of Wall Street meets Melrose Place. I thought it was kind of like girls set in London with somehow more drugs and sex and dickheads. Um, and it's all of those things. So it's got this weird authenticity and realism to it, but then parts of it really on. It's really quite kind of dramatic in a way that is less believable. So it's it's got this weird rub that I find in it. And I don't know if that is the influence of Lena Dunham and, um, it, you know, alongside Mickey Down and Conrad Kay. What I would say is it feels weirdly out of step with the times in terms of the culture they're creating, right? So as we said, they're in their early 30s. So I was just thinking about when they would have been working in that environment maybe a decade ago. So maybe it's just because we're post-COVID. You know, there's a lot of stuff about being kind and about people not centering their entire lives around careers and money. And that's where I always think the kind of millennial kids are. And this feels like this could have been set in the 90s or it, it's very much that uh, 
everything's about work, everything's about money, your entire life, your identity, your personal life, every single thing that you do revolves around work and your job. And so something about that wasn't quite sitting. And maybe it is because it's it's what COVID's done to the world and people aren't in offices. I mean, you suddenly like, oh, my God, those people, they're like shagging each other and there's no hygiene and doing drugs together. And I'm like, oh, this is like a, a COVID nightmare. But and I did think I have to say, Boyd is right about the sex. There is a lot of sex and it's shown very honestly. But it also, for me, verged on gratuitous at times. So the women in this this show are all very conventionally attractive. The women who got naked are incredibly hot women and you see a lot of their bodies. But you also see the men naked and they are also... I was about to say, yeah, there's, there's yeah. a big old full frontal willy shot in the first there episode. There men naked and all those men are very conventionally attractive. It doesn't have the thing that girls had, which is Lena Dunham really wanted to show real people's bodies what they looked like when you were having sex. Um, these, I mean, you know, the, the women in this, holy shit, it's, it's kind of a porn version of sex and porn plays a role in there <laughs> as well in terms of the storytelling. <laughs> so it's this weird mix because... It's kind of rough in places from a filmmaking perspective. And the grammar of London that they are working with is really interesting because I kept thinking about Michaela Cole and I May Destroy You and that bold and vibrant and exciting London that she created with I May Destroy You. And this is completely different. It's shown as um, exhausting and brutal and kind of grey and tight and claustrophobic. And and it's a very different London that they created. And I think it's quite effective in many respects. Um, It can feel quite punishing to watch it. I've watched two um, episodes of this. And the rhythm of it is it's quite relent- relentless and they're really good. And there's this weird like techno soundtrack underneath it um, that's running along for pretty much most of, of the episode. So I I liked it, but I found myself a bit at sea with it. I wasn't sure it all fully worked together. Um, I didn't know if it was doing or saying anything kind of new and interesting, but but I did enjoy it because I thought the characters were really good. You know, you've got a lot of debuts in there. And, you know, Mahala Herald, it's her first major on-screen role. I think she had a minor role in Modern Love on Amazon, but she was a stage actress before that. She's completely compelling, really magnetic. You really root for her in the get-go. But she can also be a dick, and everybody in there is flawed um, and interesting, and they do have a really great dynamic, and the wider ensemble cast is really good. So I'm probably going to keep watching it because I'm finding something quite interesting about it. I just, I'm just i not sure it holds together entirely as a cogent, cohesive thing, but I also don't know if that really matters or whether that's just the nature of this world at this point. Um, and that's the way it's rendered and that's actually a more realistic way of looking at what it is to be these young people in this environment, in this company, and within a culture that's defined pretty much exclusively by drugs, sex and money. Yes. I think it's interesting. Yeah, I know what you mean. It, if it wasn't for the iPhones, you'd think this was it could yeah. be set, couldn't it, in, you know, in the 90s or yeah, yeah. the 2000s. It does have that. I think part of part of the whole the point it's trying to make, though, which I think is interesting, is that this mm. still goes on, you know, isn't it? I think it's saying the whole Wall Street era isn't over. And the whole I city. that's what... I think it does. Yeah. I think it has to. I think because these these institutions still exist and they're still. I think so. I think what it's saying is, what is it like in this current world of 
you know, where people are more sensitive about, they're supposed to be more sensitive about all these issues like bullying and, um, and misogyny and all of that. And yet in a world where the, of, of massive capitalism yeah. at its peak still going on, can it, can these two, so I think that is kind of an interesting collision that it's dealing with. That is interesting because um, there's a couple throughout. of scenes, aren't there, where they reference the fact that, oh, you're going to be asked about the company culture and make yeah. sure you don't. And right. it is, in, and that's the only thing that does remind you that it is modern day. Cause I, I think I thought at first it wasn't, it feels very American psycho, not, that very kind of quite pulpy 90s. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think you're right. It is there are a few interesting scenes where you know it's that tension, I suppose, of of modern day capitalism, where you have a seemingly outward looking culture which says we don't do those unhealthy, toxic things anymore. You know, sexism isn't allowed, sexual harassment can't happen these days. It's a post Me Too world, but actually, all of the undercurrents of that stuff is all still there and you have, don't you, you have young women being harassed uh, when they kind of rebuff one of the more senior guys, advances. Um, And so that is, that you're right, that is interesting actually, but how you can still build a capitalist culture um, while you've also got this other side of it going on as well. James? Hi, sorry, I went away, but now I've come back, so it's all fine. I have no idea what either of you just said, but I'm sure it was true. We just carried on. (laughs) What did you think of industry then, James? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, yeah, they were all twats, and I felt lactically and struggled with it quite a lot. Um, it's an interesting. So, what I, what I thought was absolutely true about this. So, Alan Seppenwall and Rolling Stone. His whole thing is he went. This is not so much succession as it is a kind of high tone Grey's Anatomy, and it's like that. That it had that vibe to me. Like it's just random. Lots of people. It's work. It's a workplace shagging drama. That seems to be what this is. Uh, in the same way that Grey's Anatomy always was, but. I think what weirdly what this kind of hit me most is like the toxic work environment that these people work in. Like I know nothing about the financial sector, but these these two clearly, you know, say this is a this is a realistic representation of what it's like to work there. And it made me very glad that that's not where I work. It's just a very different environment to the one that I exist in. And I just I it, it, yeah I didn't like I didn't like the environment. I found it really stressful. I hated broadly everyone in it. That's not to say you know. I don't think it's good. I think it's interesting. I weirdly quite like the fact that they didn't attempt to spoon feed you what all the terminology meant in the same way that uh, Terry's favorite TV show, The Wire does. It kind of just drops you in and expects you to just work out what everyone does and what is going on. And it doesn't make any effort to, you know, kind of spoon feed you the world of this sort of banking lifestyle. Um, And I did like that. But again, it's like I need someone to latch onto in a show. But I just thought they were all kind of equally on that level. And I just, I couldn't get on with it. So no, I will not be pressing on with this show because it fails the bell end test. And ultimately, I can't get past that. No surprise there. Yeah, no surprise there. No surprise there. But if you enjoy leaning into the bell ends, as it were, <laughs> then Industry comes to BBC Two on Tuesday, November the 10th at 9.15pm. Next up this week, we have the highly anticipated return of Her Madge in The Crown Season 4. Olivia Coleman once more hefts the ball and scepter, but is joined this time around by Gillian Anderson's Iron Lady and Emma Corrin's Lady Di. Terry, were you royally entertained? <laughs> so, um, I think it's helpful just to kind of remember where we left The Crown 
in season three, which had really, season three had really focused on um, Margaret's kind of horrific marriage and, and deteriorating mental health, um, Charles's relationship with Camilla and um, Princess Anne's relationship with Camilla's soon-to-be husband. And I think the general consensus, and we talked about this on this very podcast um, about season three, was that it was good, but it was it was patchy. So there were episodes that people really loved. The Aberfan disaster episode, for example, was just one of the best episodes of The Crown ever. But there was an argument really about whether it was as consistent as it had been um, for years before. I think one of the big pluses of season three i would say was the arrival of josh o'connor as prince charles who carries that on here josh o'connor god's own country incredible actor and brought a real tenderness and humanity um to charles which i loved and you have him coming back here you've got erin doherty as princess anne Helena Bonham Carter is still incredible as Princess Margaret, um, although she's slightly sidelined in in season four. Tobias Menzies as the Duke of Edinburgh, and then um, Olivia Colman as as her match. Um, <laughs> and this really takes two main threads narratively. The first of which is um, the marriage of Prince uh, Princess Charles, the marriage of Prince Charles and uh, Princess <laughs> Diana, and the relationship between Thatcher and the Queen which takes us to two pieces of casting, one of which is utterly incredible, which is Gillian Anderson as Margaret Thatcher. We talked about this last week when we talked about the trailer after it had dropped. My God. I'll get to it in a minute, but let me finish my sentence. Emma Corrin is as Diana, Princess of Wales. So it's, you know, in Emma Corrin, we should just say, has kind of had um, smaller parts. So she was in Misbehaviour last year, which was the Keira Knightley 1970s um, Miss World drama. Um, and I think she was in Pennyworth as well. And she's, you know, this is one of the kind of most hotly contested, talked about um, castings in years. And it's a real challenge because you're going, you're taking Diana's life from the age of 16 when she very first meets Charles in what I'll come to, but is one of the weirdest fucking things ever. Um, And then up to the age of 28 when the the marriage is in real trouble. Um, And as we all know, Elizabeth Debicki is going to play Diana after that. So... What you have is two women in Thatcher and Diana who are two women who Thatcher, not maybe not so much as Diana, but two of the most photographed women of that era who were on television regularly, who were in newspapers every day. Um, and Gillian Anderson, I have to say, for an American especially, she is just the most wonderful Thatcher. She has this physicality in the way she moves as Thatcher, the way she holds her shoulder, the way she walks with the handbag, the way she holds her head when she's having that bouffant sprayed in the living hell out of. It's phenomenal. The way she talks, the delivery, and I was YouTubing some clips of Thatcher at the same time, is just remarkable. Um, and you totally buy that she's Thatcher. And I have to say, the scenes between her and Olivia Coleman, because they, they famously had quite a tumultuous relationship and the crown really digs into that. The kind of rivalry between these two women, um, it's an amazing line where Philip says, oh God, that's the last thing the country needs, two women leading it. Um, and, you know, it, it delves into those issues of sisterhood and, and how they've both... 
um, achieved so much in, in what has traditionally been men's worlds and, and how that makes them view other women. There's a great thing where um, Gillian Anderson says how she's not appointing women to her cabinet because women are too emotional and how they're both kind of exceptions and, and how that leads them both to kind of distrust the other one. It, the chemistry between them and the back and forth between them is just brilliant. Now, Emma Corrin as Diana, I think, has a really difficult job, right? Because she is playing one of the world's most photographed ever women. Um, we didn't see her talk as much, but we did see her do speeches. There was the very famous interview she and Charles did when they got engaged, which is replicated in um, in this show. And it's it's interesting because there's a bit of Uncanny Valley thing happening for me where she's kind of an approximation of Diana and has some of the mannerisms, the kind of doe-eyed thing, the way she speaks. But there's something for me that just doesn't fully track her as Diana. And I can't work out what it is. There's, she doesn't embody Diana physically like I believe Gillian Anderson does with Thatcher. And I know it's difficult when it's somebody so famous and, and it's always going to be a challenge and you're always going to be judged about how she was in real life. But... Something about it doesn't quite work for me. Um, but I have to say, this is kind of a minor point. I've I binged several episodes of this. I feel so much more consistent than season three. It looks fucking amazing. You know, it's what the, what do they reckon it costs per episode? 10 million? It hmm. looks like they spent 10 million on it. It looks phenomenal. The script is amazing. I think actually, you know, balancing something like the relationship of Charles and Diana, where they both kind of have their um, their fans and the people who believe their narrative and their perspective and think the other one is is kind of the villain of the piece. Neither of them come out as the villain of the piece. You end up somehow, and, you know, Peter Morgan's a genius, in that you end up feeling sympathy and empathy for both of them and what you get in a drama that you think you know all the beats you think you know who's in the right you think you know who's in the wrong it feels like a really fresh perspective on what's just a really human relationship of of how that would break down there's some heartbreaking scenes with josh o'connor um in the run-up to the marriage where he's essentially what looking for a way out and the queen won't give him one and there's the one scene in particular um where they're in a room together and it's just devastating i think josh o'connor is just incredible in this role and everybody i have to say every single person completely nailed it as i say the emma corin diana thing just just doesn't quite track for me but it doesn't affect my enjoyment of the show which i think is really from what i've seen creatively narratively the writing costume the way everything direction it's just at the complete top of its game, and I've I've loved every episode so far. I do agree. I I think I particularly agree. So uh, uh, the Princess Diana element of it is so interesting, mm. isn't it? Because it's just the hardest thing to cast in the world. I mean, every attempt, then there have been plenty to dramatise her before and to cast people as her. They've all. I, I think that I don't think any of them have worked no. really. And I think it's. I think she's in, perhaps impossible. I, I don't know. How what the solution is, and I think because, but the, I think the re, part of the reason why it doesn't really it doesn't matter so much, is that in a way you're 
like it works because actually you you almost need to feel slightly alienated from her as Prince Charles is. Mm. You know, he is like not even going near her for for half the series. You know, before they before they get married. I mean, obviously because he's in love with Camilla, and he's kind of and this is kind of an arranged marriage that was, but but. That sense of alienation from her really comes across so well. And as you say, um, Josh O'Connor is incredible. I mean, I do think he's way too handsome and hot to be Prince Charles because I have you know, because he's spectacularly, he's like a, he's like the good look, he's a really sexy version of Prince Charles because he's got the ears and everything and he's got the voice. But, you know, I mean, he yeah, he's hot. But that scene, I mean, yeah, that scene with the Queen and him is f- absolutely phenomenal. And I think Peter Morgan... I mean, every now and then I have issues with Peter Morgan's writing. I think he's not exactly the most subtle um, of writers. <laughs> and actually, sometimes his, I think his kind of, so in the first, there's a whole thing in the first episode about the hunting of a stag, which I found quite clunky, you know, and kind of obvious and stuff. But actually, it works because this series is is like the highest of high class and I use the word soap or, you know, mm-hmm. melodrama. And I don't think subtlety is the point, really. And I think his writing, as you say, he absolutely manages to make you feel that these people are living, breathing human beings. It makes you feel sympathy for Margaret fucking Thatcher, as you say, astonishingly played by by Gillian Anderson. And not in the same way as that annoying no. film did. Um, uh, it, it, more because actually... You, you can't but acknowledge there's that she's a human being and it does not soft soap. I think the way it depicts Thatcher and her politics and the effect it had on the country, particularly I think is it in episode four, I think, uh, like you, I binged a lot. Um, and so the episode slightly merged into one, but it does, it absolutely shows you the c- catastrophic effect that Thatcher had on the country. And yet at the same time, because Gillian Anderson is so brilliant and because Peter Morgan is so clever at, at showing you the humanity, even beneath the most despicable of figures, that it, that you that you do feel that. I mean, there are just, it just every single scene works. I think that's that's the thing about it. And so, even though often he is he is telling you what's going on, he's not showing you. I mean, people literally sit there going, "Oh, Charles is in love with Camilla." You know, <laughs> it's like really do they are the royal family really sitting there having these chats where all their emotions are completely to the fore, and they're all saying exactly what they mean about each other. I I, I almost didn't, you know, sometimes it stretches credulity in that way, but. It, in the end, it doesn't matter because it's so supremely entertaining and enjoyable and moving and powerful. And I, for me, like the real, the real USP um, is the director is Benjamin Caron, who directs most of this series. I think he has done a brilliant job because it is, it's cinematic. That scene again with the Queen and Charles is with the fireworks. You, you you'll know it when you see it. Is astonishing, and he does a brilliant job of visualizing the drama of making. You know, see, uh, so many of the scenes are just people in rooms. I mean, big big fucking rooms, <laughs> lavish rooms, but he makes them so dramatic and visually interesting. And I think he provides a lot of the subtlety that I think maybe the script lacks, but doesn't necessarily need. But he makes it. It goes along an incredible pace. It's relentlessly fascinating. As you say, it's so much... I think it's a massive improvement on Series 3 because you haven't got the indulgence of, you know, an episode where Prince Philip's going on, banging on about the moon. It's very, very... um, Every single episode is dealing with something really interesting and important and weighty. So I I absolutely love it, yeah. I didn't know who everyone was, I've got to be honest with you. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so Princess Diana, right? right she was but, Lady Diana's well, Spencer. Bit, they were just like when they're sitting around the dinners because I don't watch the show. I like, came to it. They're sitting around. And I was thinking, well, Josh O'Connor. And I realised that was Prince Charles. Although initially I thought Tobias Benz's was Prince Charles because there's you know a cigarette paper oh between them. God. I was like, they were similar. Like it's, it's just like it's posh, posh royal people. I was like, who's this supposed to be? I'm very unclear. And so, okay, so this Prince Charles, because he looks a bit like him, right? I got that, I got that. And then the Queen went hunting with someone blonde. I don't know who that is. Who's Her that? daughter. Okay, fine. So which, which princess Anne. is that? Anne. Princess Anne. Okay, good. Didn't know that. And then Charles Dance. I'm like, okay, fine. I don't understand like why Tywin Lannister's here or who he is. But then that became clear by the end of the first episode. So I'm like, okay, right. Well, I you see your Lord Mountbatten. Yes. Yes, yes, I knew who he was by the end of it. Bertie, obviously Bertie. So, uh, but I, so I was following from a distance through a lot of this. I quite enjoyed it. Like, like it's it's wow. beautifully made. This series is. I mean, it is just like you know poshy standards, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, like it's it's good. It's good, and I recognise you know the, the Charles. So the Charles Diana romance. Like, how old is Charles at that point? Can someone? Well, so when they first meet, right? She's yeah. She's what? What did I say? Six sixteen. Um, when she's dressed from the Midsummer oh, yeah, yeah. Night's so Dream, yeah. and he's obviously in his twenties, and yeah. and you know that's that's the bit where you go, oh god, yeah, they. She really was that young and he was dating her sister. And then when they actually began dating, she was 18, I thought, right? Yeah, yeah, she's just 18. Yeah, just 18, so, yeah. yeah. Um, and, the, and do you know what? The age thing is interesting because I remember thinking, oh, she looks too young to be Diana. And then you actually look at those very early mm. pictures of Diana from when they announced their engagement and you're like, well, yeah, she was a teenager. And, and I, I do think what Emma Corrin does a good job of is capturing how young she really was. There's a whole sequence where she puts on roller skates and skates around the palace <laughs> yeah. listening to pop music. I think Duran Duran on her headphones. And you yeah. and she really you really do believe she's that age and you mm. kind of understand what was at stake and why the whole thing was probably a terrible idea from the get go. And and, she, and that felt new to me because I always thought of Diana as a grown woman and and, and seeing the the uh, journey she went on from being a girl living in a flat share in Earl's Court, you know, and working in a nursery that they kept calling the kindergarten all the way through, which was driving me mental, and then <laughs> suddenly being driven to the palace and that's her new home and the Queen won't answer the phone and Charles has disappeared off on a tour and, and it's just her. They they did establish that, I thought, um, really well. Um, and that's when it didn't matter so much that she was that she didn't quite capture Diana because it felt like a whole new bit of Diana you yeah. didn't know. And so it that lack of familiarity actually actually worked because it made it feel like you were experiencing a, a different part of Diana that you'd never seen. Yeah, her loneliness is, yeah. is really well is dramatized. That that is that is heartbreaking. Um, when they're just she's completely yeah. ignored by not only Charles but everyone, and she's left alone in this massive palace. And yeah, oh yeah, I mean that is, that was really. Well I think I would actually benefit from watching this whole series because it, it illustrates how little I know about the royal family and who anyone is because I don't care. Like I have no interest in the royal family, so I genuinely don't know who half these people are. Even when you tell me their names, I'm only vaguely aware of who they are. I have so little knowledge of the royal family that this this there will at least be no spoilers for me watching this show. 
Um, it's brilliant that you consider like the royal family almost to be part of the same like, like pop yeah. culture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, like Bake Off. You won't no. go there. Um, no, I'm not even Bake I mean, these people do have a, a certain amount of importance It feels in just British like reality society. television to me. I'm like, who gives a shit? It's, it's basically Big Brother it's with more expensive frocks. That's that's what the royal family is. Wow. Well, I think, but I think wow. the genius bit is like... They, we think, because of um, mainly because of tabloid newspapers, we think we know every spit and cough of of what happened to the royal family, especially this period. This period was peak tabloid. It was, you know, every single copy of the paper every single day had Diana in it, photographed or you know, sources revealing something. Um, and what you feel like you're seeing is is actually the real story. And obviously, you know, it's not like anybody's told him the real story, but the, the attention to detail mm. in it really makes you feel like you're you're experiencing a, a proper version or, or proper detail you haven't heard before. And I think making that story feel fresh, I I think is a really challenging job. The way they do these tiny little things that are kind of references to the way that their characters have been described before is just I think really really interesting and um and and makes it all and just feel like Boyd said it feels human. It feels like yeah they they are royals, but also they're a young girl who's lonely. They're a guy who's in love with his long-term girlfriend who went off and married somebody else and he's still desperately in love with her she's a mother who's torn between her job and doing what's right for her kids it all feels incredibly relatable which Mm. is really fucking (laughs) difficult when they're the literal royal family well, I think it is because people make the mistake of thinking this is a celebration of the Royal and it absolutely is not. It is a mm. critique. It's definitely a critique, and, I, and and perhaps one of the more subtle elements of it is that it's con- it does remind you at key moments the preposterousness mm. of the institution and of the manners and 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 you know. But I thought the way that it showed you that the the snobbery towards Thatcher was yep. was so interesting. The way they treat Diana when she first was the, the the teaching her of the these ridiculous rules and. You you know, almost that kind of the bullying nature of the whole institution and the effect it has on people who aren't part of it is there. It's absolutely there. So it's not. I think you can. You, you know, I think if you don't, I think if you watch it from afar and you think, oh, because it is so lavish and enjoyable, but it's definitely not saying this is a good thing at all. In fact, have we established or has it been established whether or not her Madge watches the show? No, you never know, this- really, because she never. She. I mean, this is part of the madness of the whole. She, the Queen never. N- n- we never know what she likes about anything or. You know, it's it, she's a complete mystery. Mystery. She's a blank, but one. You know, really, could she not not watch? She loves the expanse, apparently. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's been mm. a few. There have been a few kind of reports about you know the royal family mm. being particularly unhappy with certain parts of it, and um. But I I read that certain members of of the household have consulted for background and off the record, but have consulted yeah. about certain events. Yeah, I, I I read that as well. Yeah, I bet they'll watch it. I mean, yeah, you I mean, would. Yeah, of course you. How would, would you not yeah. be able to watch About a dramatization yeah. of yourself? <laughs> <laughs> you know. I wonder if it passes the Queen's Bell End test. We'll see if we can find out. <laughs> Do you think you'd pass the Queen's Bell End test? <laughs> Almost certainly not. Uh, right. <laughs> well, season four of The Crown does drop on Netflix on Sunday, November the fifteenth, which is an odd day for Netflix. Why is that, Boyd? Explain you. Explain it. They always drop The Crown on a Sunday. Didn't know that. Um, yeah. I think they f- regard it as like a, you know perfect Sunday night. Downton ah. style, Downton times a million <laughs> entertainment. So yeah, it's the one show they always drop okay. on Sunday. 
Well, finally this week we have Small Axe, which is not a miniature gardening tool, but nor is it actually a television show. But let's gloss over that fact. It is instead a curated collection of films by director Steve McQueen, an anthology film series, if you will, uh, linked in theme, if not in story. But they're on TV, and there's a series of them, so we've made an executive decision to call it a TV show. Kind of. Isn't that right, Boyd? Yes, well, I mean, you're wrong, because (laughs) Stephen McQueen absolutely conceived this as a television event. This is a (laughs) television... But they're made for television. They are not. They have been only been shown in cinemas as part of film festivals. They are absolutely meant to be seen on prime time, BBC One on Sunday. That's the whole fucking point of them. And Steve McQueen absolutely. He was interviewed recently on TV. He was like, "I this. I drove this through. I want this to be a TV event because millions more people watch television on a Sunday night than ever mm. ever go to cinema." I have to make that clear. You know, literally the comparison is astonishing. So you know. That's why he's done it. He's done it to make it a television primetime BBC One thing. Thank fuck, because it's so interesting. So it is one of the TV events of the year, James. That's that's me, TV explaining to you. Oh, as you say. Um, Yeah. So these are five separate stories about the black British experience. They run from the kind of late 60s through to the 80s across, you know, across them. most of them, but not all of them, are, are are true stories. Some of them are kind of based on ideas and incidents and events that Steve McQueen heard about, where either when he was growing up from friends and family. And this first one, Mangrove, is the longest one. This is a two. This is a two-hour film made for television. <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you. Co-written by Steve McQueen himself and Alistair Siddons, and, direct, and he and Steve McQueen directs all of them. By the way. And this is about the truth. This is a true story, Mangrove, of about a cafe that was in Notting Hill in the 60s, in the late 60s. It begins in the late 60s. It's run by a guy called Frank Critchlow, played by Sean Parks. And it's a Caribbean restaurant. And it's, and it's kind of, it becomes a hub, not only, you know, serving good, authentic food for him and his friends and anyone who wanders in, but it also becomes like a cultural and political hub for activists at the time. So it was it became a really important place, a really notoriously important place. You know, people like um, Bob Marley went there after playing football around the corner, apparently, um, and American stars would come in and visit it because it became such, an, such, such a famous place, such a kind of central focus of the black community. But it is also the um, subject of incredible persecution by the local police. And particularly one one um, constable literally raids the place, is constantly um, bullying and abusing the people who go there and Frank Critchlow himself. And it gets to the point where the local activists, um, led by Althea Jones-Leconte and Darkus Howe, who, anyone who grew up watching um, TV in the 80s, 90s, 2000s would have known that Darkus Howe was a brilliant, brilliant, became a kind of very famous uh, TV figure for me, like always talking about the black experience and talking in a very, uh, as a kind of radical black activist. He's played here uh, absolutely brilliantly by Malachi Kirby, I thought, just capturing this unique figure who has a very, very specific way of speaking and a very powerful um, charisma. Um, Althea is played by Letitia Wright, also absolutely brilliant. So they decide, her and their activist friends decide to demonstrate to have a march against the police treatment of this character. 
cafe and the police uh, arrest them in a rather similar way to the trial of the mm. Chicago 7, that film, the Aaron Sorkin film. It's got a lot in common because while the first half establishes this situation and these people and their lives um, and the way the police, uh, the police brutality and persecution of them, the second half of this is pretty much a courtroom drama a la the, the trial of the Chicago 7. This time um, it's of the Mangrove 9 as they became known. Um, so uh, Frank, the owner himself and his friends and the activists all get accused of um, uh, various, uh, wrongfully accused by the police of various crimes. And there's an incredibly epic court case that that was very powerful where certain of them represent themselves, so Darkus Howe and Jones the Con represented themselves. Um, and they were kind of helped by a, a, white, a young white lawyer called Ian McDonald, played by Jack Loudon. And it becomes a really riveting um, courtroom drama, as I say. I thought this was phenomenal. I think... It, I think it's a very interesting, and the reason I mentioned the the um, the trial of the Chicago Seven, which I absolutely loved. So it shows you that there are two ways of doing this kind of story. There is the Aaron Sorkin way, which is very slick, and and kind of um, beautifully made, and almost like every single scene of that film is working in a in a very smart, you know, kind of slightly self consciously clever way. Whereas this, for me. Is even better, and this particular th- drama, I think it's it's more. It feels incredibly authentic. It feels gritty and real, and it and and slightly and and I think it's got a slightly more more emotional weight. And and the the power of the scenes where the police are brutalizing the black people in uh, at this moment in Notting Hill in the late sixties, early seventies, are so shocking to to me to watch it dramatized. Even though you're aware that all of this happened, but to see it dramatized in such an unfair flinching way by Steve McQueen. He, he does an incredible job. And it's like a slow burn of you getting to know these people and getting to kind of, you know, like and, in, 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 you know, almost love them. And to the point where they're then taken to trial and have to face, you know, the unbelievable racist institutions of the British legal system. It just becomes overwhelmingly, for me, an overwhelming emotional experience. I thought this was astonishing. I think the casting is perfect. I thought the way, the pace of it, you know, it's quite slow and deliberate to start with, as you say, establishing this this world, establishing the cafe, establishing the kind of people that were there and its importance in the community. And then it turns into almost like a courtroom thriller in the second half overwhelmingly and, and and incredibly uplifting in the end because it shows because it's not you know it, it shows you there is a way out of activism really it's a celebration of activism in the end in a slightly similar way again to that Aaron Sorkin film but even more powerful and effective for me I thought it was absolutely brilliant and I've watched you know a couple of the other ones, subsequent ones coming up and and they are all incredibly different but equally brilliant so I do think this is absolutely 100% one of the TV events of the year I'm with Boyd. I mean, it's. Fi- I don't give a fuck if it's a TV show or if it's a film. It is just whatever it is. It is remarkable, and I like the fact it's being shown on TV because these stories are part of this country's history and heritage. This is British history, and. This should be seen by as many people as possible. I mean, we've got to start with the the look and feel. So the production designer, Helen Scott, and the cinematographer, Shabir Kirchner. I mean, the way they've created West London at that era is just remarkable. You can almost... 
I could feel the fabrics and everything on the ends of my fingers. It's so authentic. It's so beautiful. Um, it puts it in a place and time immediately. The attention to detail is remarkable. And it's matched only by the direction and by the performances. Um, Sean Parks by Frank Critchlow just completely smashes the frustration the injustice um and i wanted to mention luella gideon um who's aunt betty who he has just such a wonderful dynamic with but i mean the person for me in in this is letitia wright who is just electric she has this gravity and this confidence and just this aura around her which you forget how young she is she's got this insane kind of presence on screen there's this speech she gives where she says we we mustn't be the victims but the protagonists of our own stories and you just believe every single word she says she has such a weight to her and she is remarkable in this it leaps and bounds beyond what she's done before and she's put in some amazing performances in in her career so far um and, you know, what he's managed to achieve, Steve McQueen, is just something which is, as Boyd said, really difficult to watch in places and really hard. And when there's violence and when there's injustice being being just played out in front of you, it can be really tough to watch. But it's also funny at times and it's about love and it's about joy and it's about community and it is about activism and the power of people to come together. And it feels hopeful as well and there's just you know there's little details of of filmmaking beauty and this is one bit where they raid the restaurant and you see it all happening on the floor and there's there's just a moment where he holds the camera on um all the smash glasses and crockery and everything and there's a colander still kind of going on the kitchen floor hmm. and he just holds the camera at that point and it just things like that because i think it'd be easy to kind of zoom in on the violence and and especially maybe for a tv audience but there's a real patience with this as well and a delicacy to some of the filmmaking that i just think is absolutely beautiful this is a film built out of passion out of love and out of truth about wanting to tell the truth and wanting to represent what really happened at these really important points in our country's history. Um, so I'm with Boyd. I just think this is a, a brilliant, beautiful, bold bit of filmmaking. Wherever you watch it, whatever you want to call it, it's just superb. It's so exciting that this is happening. It, as TV again, I can't emphasise enough because people will not know about this stuff. You, when you see, you know, remember there are people still out there, seemingly intelligent people saying, you know, Britain is not a racist society. Blah 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 blah. Well, watch this, and I think when you see the institutional racism of the police, for example, in this in this first episode, and then of other institutions that follows. You can't not but realise that, you know, the effect that this has had, this has on on people, on the black community. And that's, you know, that's the overarching kind of purpose of it and the impact mm. and the power of it. So I think it's really, it's really exciting that it's a TV. Well, Mangrove arrives on BBC One on Sunday, November the 15th at 9pm with a new one every Sunday thereafter. Anything else out this week, Boyd, of note? Film, TV or otherwise? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <such a> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, 
Oh, if you want, there's a there's a there's a two part documentary on ITV about the actual Diana interview that is dramatised in the Crown. So if you can't get enough of that story, James, <laughs> I can watch a documentary about it as well. About three more hours on that, which was an incredible event. That yeah, was an incredible that, event. That, that's the Bashir. In, in that's the um, investigation mm. yeah, into the Bashir. Bashir. I mean, don't yeah. get me started on that. I'm obsessed with that now. Them showing her, Jem showing yeah. her brother fake documents. To, to to suggest that yes. members of her staff were being paid off by the papers so that she'd give them her story. Scandal. Yeah. Is there a documentary you can recommend to explain to me who anyone in The Crown is? I think it's just called Living in Your Own Country and Knowing That There's <laughs> right. a Queen. Okay, good. Thank <laughs> yeah. you, Terry. That's useful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Pick of the week. Mer- Mangrove. Yeah, Mangrove. But it's yeah. a great week, though. I, I think it's a, it's a brilliant week. Good week. It's another, you know, they're all... I love them all. We have time for a quick Banshee segment before we say goodbye. Who would like to kick off this week? I will. <clears throat> My Banshee this week is one Mississippi from Amazon Prime Video. I don't know why I'm singing it. It's that um, song. <laughs> so this was uh, two seasons, Tig, um, Tig Nataro's semi-autobiographical comedy drama Dramedy. That doesn't even work, does it? Because that would be drama comedy. Anyway, that doesn't matter. So it was based on what um, Tignataro has since described as the worst year ever. So she did have a year where um, she was battling cancer, but also um, her mum sadly passed away. And so this dramedy is following her as she goes home to her childhood town um, in Mississippi, has to deal with the death of her mum and essentially kind of dealing with other members of her family. So she created it, wrote it, exec produced it, um, and we should mention that Louis C.K. did um, support, I think, at least the first season, if not the second, as exec producer. Um, And it's a real shame because actually it was due a third season and uh, Louis C.K. had been booted off essentially in the wake of the uh, accusations against him and then the third season got cancelled um which is a real shame right because how many shows are there about middle-aged queer women american british whatever they're, they're not exactly in plentiful supply i mean she's really funny and she obviously minds all of this stuff in her stand-up and and there's usually some of that on netflix and what have you um but this was actually really good and i know that when they cancelled it i think amazon put out a statement saying they wanted to focus on bigger franchises which i find um a bit of shame but there are two seasons of this if you have never seen it it is on um amazon prime video and you can watch it right now exciting well, I have something less exciting for you, Terry, but only because it's vaguely thematic. Uh, I was going to mention Crusade. Crusade was the very short-lived J. Michael Straczynski spin-off of Babylon 5. Now, he had a whole first season ready to go for this. In fact, he had a five-year plan, much like Babylon 5, to run for this. And it was all about the Drac plague, which has been unleashed and will kill everyone on Earth. It's a nanovirus plague, so it's very, very relevant to today's. Anyway, so the nanovirus Drac plague is released on Earth and the crew of the ship Excalibur go out into the universe to search for a cure to the plague, led, as all things should be, by Gary Cole as Captain Matthew Gideon, 
captain of Excalibur. Um, this was a mad one because the TNT, the, the the network, decided they didn't want this while it was still in production. And it all got a bit fraught with Straczynski. So while they had planned out, and I believe written all 22 episodes, they cancelled the show before the first episode even aired. So we got, I think, 12 episodes in the end, maybe 13. And... Um, Weirdly, this is actually quite a complicated one because there are four accepted orthodoxies as to which order you should watch those episodes in. Um, so it's uh, it's a slightly odd one. There's the original air order. There's the one Straczynski kind of retconned it to. There's been another one, which is he's actually come back and actually said, this is the best order. And then there's one where they've tried to use an internal consistency for it. So it's a confusing show to watch if you can even find it. Uh, but if you do, don't, because it's not very good. <laughs> It's a it's a it's a shadow of Babylon Five, unfortunately. Though I will say it does have Peter Woodward in it as Galen the Techno Mage, uh, and if for no other reason than that, it's maybe worth catching. You do, you do remember that Banshee is meant to be a recommendation. Yeah, but I've kind of gone off piece now. Yeah, uh, so yeah, yeah. I've, I've gone Maverick. back to 1999 for a genuinely terrible. This is space in 1999, not space 1999, and um, yeah, the Babylon Five Crusade. Don't watch. It. So James, so James's banshees are <laughs> recommending you watch something that every human being on the planet has already seen four times, or recommending shows you won't have heard of that are shit. Yeah, it's a cautionary tale. I'm telling people to learn from my mistakes. I spent mm-hmm. time watching this, so you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Such a loose canon these days, James. Not what, not reviewing after programs. Yeah, not, you this know, from I mean, two people just, who insisted we have films on the show behavior. this week. <laughs> oh, it's not a film. Shut up. <laughs> um, I've picked I, I've picked a show that is really difficult to find. I'm sorry, and I picked it before I realised that I don't even know if it's on DVD. It's I don't. How am I the maverick? <laughs> I know. So I do apologise. I do apologise. But I was reminded of it because of industry actually, and thinking about how sim- the similarities to this life. Because the, uh, when this after this life which came out in the late 90s, there were various attempts to kind of capture that kind of essence and have a kind of like an ensemble drama dealing with sexuality and race and all of that. And Attachments was an example of it. This went out in, um, it went for two series in 2000, 2002, 26 episodes. It was produced by Tony Garner, who produced This Life. It starred, among others, David Walliams, and I think his very first dramatic role of any kind. Ido Goldberg, who's gone on to um, some really good things, Amanda Ryan, Justin Pierre, and it was a it was about a startup. It was about a like um, a, a tech startup company way back then when those things were just happening. So it felt very on the button and of its moment. I can only imagine it's going to be really fucking dated now, and I'd almost like fascinated to see it. But it was it was really daring and bold. It was actually criticised by the Broadcasting Standards Commission for having yeah. too much sex, um, which I think is the ultimate compliment and the ultimate reason to recommend it. Attachments, but apologies, it's really hard to get hold of. <laughs> Thank you, Boyd. Well, that is then it for another episode of the Pilot TV Podcast. If you've enjoyed it and don't think we record from a fishbowl, then please do head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five star rating. Hot fact for you, although our current average rating would appear upon first glance to be 4.5 stars, we actually have a five-star rating. If you count the legal star ratings, then we have five stars by a huge margin. But some people have been fraudulently submitting four-star ratings, which is terrible and hugely unfair. Needless to say, Pilot's lawyers have contacted Apple to insist that from this point on, only five-star ratings are counted. We are, as ever, on social media at James C. Dyer, at Terry underscore White, and at Boyd Hilton. And while I have 
absolutely no earthly idea what shows are coming out next week. I do promise to do my level best to find out before the next show. Pilot out. <laughs>